Well, I was thinking here as we approach this new year, how do we want to approach it? What is the way to be able to approach? What was that? With intention. Okay, I like that, with intention. But you know what? I've been hearing a lot about, especially this last year, and I suppose growing over the last few years, is a lot of fear. A lot of fear. And I understand that fear. Marion's been chiding me lately because I've been kind of hiding my head under a media rock. There, there just hasn't been a lot of news that I care to listen to. And we've been so busy here over the last couple of months that I've been just kind of keeping my head down, keep working, keeping my, my mind and spirit in the micro instead of letting it go out into the macro. But I suppose there are a few things happening worldwide that I should know about, as she was telling me. So I took some time to go up on the Internet and take a look, and it really is very disconcerting, to say the least, when nations act like middle school boys, you know, which seems to be going on a lot. This whole thing with um, the movie from Sony and then the hack of Sony from Korea and now Korea's internet going down and even though the U.S. won't admit it, they're being accused. And I mean, all of this stuff going on when, when your nation and your nation's leaders are behaving badly like this, it really takes the optimism out of your sails, doesn't it? I mean, I know so many people that are worried about where... The country is going where their lives are going, and they, some are saying they don't recognize their country anymore economically, politically, socially, in terms of the media, religiously. There's just so much uncertainty and so much fear that when you hear Jesus say something like he did, right there at John 10.10, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. How do you do that? How do you have life abundantly when the world is so uncertain? When the world, as it is, is just balanced on this razor's edge? When the least little thing seems like it could just blow the whole thing wide open to send us down some kind of vortex? How do we do what Jesus said? And as we look at this new year, are we going to approach it with dread? Are we going to approach it with this pessimism, this sense that things can't change, or is there a way that we can approach this new year with life and life abundantly as Jesus intended? This is what we have to ask ourselves, and this is what I'd like to explore a little bit this morning. Viktor Frankl, if you're familiar with him, he was a famous Jewish-German psychologist, one of the fathers of psychology in the early part of the last century. He had a quote I said, the last of the human freedoms is the ability to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. I'll say that again. The last of human freedoms is the ability to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. Now that statement has a lot of power coming from Frankel, who survived the death camps during World War II in Nazi Germany. And his entire family was killed and he survived. But he realized, having gone through that experience, that the ones who survived it in the first place and then the ones who survived it and were able to actually recover, put their lives back together again afterwards, were those who found meaning and purpose in their circumstances. They couldn't change the circumstances, but they found meaning and purpose 
in the circumstances, and they were able to choose their attitude in the circumstances as they were. Now, the thing about spending a lot of time looking at the macro is, beyond just being informed, is that you can't do a whole lot about it. Most of us can't do a whole lot about it. We can vote and we can do whatever we can. But macro things kind of move and and change and rise and fall. Civilizations and nations and armies do that without any permission from any one of us. And there's not much that we can do. So those circumstances maybe cannot be changed, at least not in the short term, maybe not even in our lifetimes. But if Frankel is right, there is a way for us to choose our attitude within those circumstances. And at the beginning of the year, I have a question for you. If we are waiting for life to become as we think it should be, when are we going to begin living? When does that time actually come? When life is just as it should be by our set of expectations. If you know me at all, you know that a lot of times I run around saying that everything is a song. <laughs> it seems like there's a song for everything. You know, every situation, a song comes to mind, and I usually blurt out the lyric because I'm annoying that way. But everything's a song. Every human emotion, every human situation, as, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's already been written about. Someone's written a song or a poem or something to describe the situation. And so what I wanted to do this morning is to talk about three songs that I think describe the situation that we're talking about this morning. And sometimes I get in trouble when I bring in song lyrics or movie quotes or whatever because I'm supposed to be quoting scripture. Well, I'm going to be quoting scripture too. But I love the way that these songs and other quotations that I bring in illuminate what Jesus is trying to say. When he says something about life and life abundantly, okay, we hear that. But what does it really get down enough When we hear Frankel say say what he said, that illuminates another bit, brings more emphasis, brings more understanding. And these songs, I think, are going to do the same thing. They're going to give us clues. They're going to give us lessons that we can consider as we're looking at this new year, as we're considering our own fears and the things that we're bringing across that imaginary line between 2014 and 2015. The first one that I want to talk to you about, and it's in your bulletins, so you can follow along with me if you like. It's called Crazy World. It was one of the songs from a movie, a musical called Victor Victoria. And just listen to the lyric. Crazy world. Full of crazy contradictions. Like a child. First you drive me wild, and then you win my heart with your wicked art. One minute tender, gentle, than temperamental as a summer storm. Just when I believe your heart's getting warmer, you're cold and you're cruel, and I, like a fool, try to cope, try to hang on to hope. Crazy world. Every day the same old roller coaster ride, but I've got my pride and I won't give in, even though I know I'll never win. Oh, how I love this crazy world. <laughs> Now, if you know the movie, everything in the movie leads up to this song and kind of leads away from it. It's the focal point. 
Because the movie is all about the tensions, the contradictions between male and female and gay and straight in this particular context. And all of those contradictions and all of those things, they come up to this point where she sings, I love this crazy world full of crazy contradictions. As a songwriter, I just think this is a, just an amazing song. If you could hear the melody, hear Julie Andrews sing it, if you could just look at this lyric. It reads like prose, and yet it's got meter. And the rhymes are complicated. They're interior. You notice that? Full of crazy contradictions like a child. First you drive me wild, and then you win my heart with your wicked art. Those rhymes are... That's just me as a songwriter talking. I digress. But it's just so beautifully done. Beautifully done sophisticated, grown up, and yet recognizing something so important that if we can't hold these things together in one place, if we're constantly trying to eliminate all contradiction, if we're trying to resolve everything, if we're trying to figure it all out, how in the world can we love this crazy world? And if we can't love this crazy world as it is, how are we going to live life and live it abundantly. See, we're spending so much time thinking about the world as it should be, maybe even working to change it as it should be. We forget that the way it is is the way God intended, apparently. Here it is. It's right in front of us. The tensions are there. How would we rather have it? Completely tensionless? Is that our goal? Does peace on earth mean to us that there is no tension, there is no contradiction, there is no paradox, everything is figured out, everything is wrapped up with a bow, we can just see it all there? How would that be if we really got what we think we want, what our fear drives us to obsessively try to obtain, which is that completely figured out world, that risk-free environment? We would be completely bored out of our gourd if we got that. Think about it doesn't work that way. Look what Jesus says at Matthew 10.34, right there. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, when he uses that word peace, as we pointed out several times, there's two words for peace in Aramaic. One, shalom, or shlama, that we know of, is the kind of peace that we normally think of. But not just the absence of conflict or tension. It's the greatest amount of health and healing and wellness and all of that. That's why you wish shlama, shalom, as a greeting. The peace he uses here has to do with tranquility, with calm. He's not bringing tranquility and calm. The sword is representative of the tension. The sword is representative of life will be lived and continue to be lived as we have experienced it. But there will be this new dimension that allows us to choose our attitude within the tension, on the edge of the sword. He's telling us right here, don't look for things that aren't coming in life. Don't set your expectations where experience is never going to manifest. You'll be miserable for the rest of your life and the abundant life that he came to bring will never be able to be real for us. How would you rather have it? What is it that you're working to try to obtain? That's the thing that we've got to look at. In all of our movies, in all of our stories, in our sports, and in our games, there has to be tension. 
There has to be just enough difficulty that we stay interested, we stay guessing, we stay alive. The things that make us feel the most alive are the things that are not thought out. Why do you think they call it an adventure? Because you don't know what's coming. You could get hurt. You could lose something. That's what enervates us. That's what drives the energy through the roof. That's what we seek out. When it's safe, when we think it's safe, but in life where it's not safe, then we want it all figured out. We want it all resolved. And then we wonder why our lives lack the meaning and lack the purpose, lack the energy, lack the arrowhead that points us into a new year. We're working at cross-purposes with ourselves. The only time life is truly resolved is in death. That's when it resolves. When everything stops, when there is nothing more to know, that's death. And there is no death in our God. Even our physical death just propels us into this next life that is full of surprises again full of a bottomless God who will continue to take us around corners and new vistas. Be careful what you're wishing for. You could be draining all of the life out of your life. I like to call this a sacred tension. When you think about it, you sitting there right now, you're not completely relaxed. If you were standing here, even if you feel comfortable and it feels like something that you do all the time and doesn't feel like you're tense, But if you really were completely relaxed, you'd be a puddle on the floor or you'd flop right off of that chair. There is a tension that is holding you upright. There is a tension that is holding your head in place. And when we go through life, it's the same thing. We seem to have this idea that peace is this complete absence of any kind of tension, absence of any kind of contradiction, any kind of paradox. But it's not. It's the balance that takes us right through the middle that allows us to hold opposite things, seemingly opposite things, hold seemingly contradictory things in one embrace and stay balanced and stay where we need to be. We want to flop down one side or another and there's a reason for that. We've all been taught Greek logic. Whether you know it or not, whether you formally learned it or not, Greek logic is the undergirding of our entire civilization. Greek logic is about the law of non-contradiction. Any of you who have taken logic, you know that. You know, only one thing can be true at one time. And everything proceeds neatly and in a line from premise to conclusion. And so everything has to be harmonized. All possible contradictions have to be resolved and harmonized into the one thing that this truth is. But there's another way to look at life, and it's the way that the Jews who wrote our Bible looked at life. They were Eastern, not Western. They didn't subscribe to this form of logic. They have what many scholars have called block logic. And it's where blocks of information are just laid down next to each other. In our Bible, sometimes verse by verse, right next to each other, completely contradictory, with no attempt to try to harmonize, to resolve. They just leave them there. Why is that? Why in the world would they do that? Isn't that wrong? Doesn't that make the Bible wrong, untrue, inaccurate? If one verse says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart against letting the people go in Exodus, and the next verse says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart with no attempt to resolve, which is true. What are the implications here? 
If one place in the Bible it says God never leaves or forsakes us, and Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's echoing David, who said the same thing in the first line of Psalm 22. Where's the truth? Where's the accuracy? I want to read you a little bit from a foundational book, a foundational for me, and it was called Our Father Abraham, and it was the Hebrew roots of, Christians, of, of, of Christianity was the subtitle of this book. And Marvin Wilson in this book is masterful in laying out the differences between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. We're the Greeks. We're the Westerners. But listen to a little bit of what he has to say, and maybe this will start to make sense to you why this is so important. The Hebrew knew he did not know all the answers. His position was, quote-unquote, under the sun. That's from Ecclesiastes 8. So his words were few. He refused to over-systematize or force harmonization on the enigmas of God's truth or the puzzles of the universe. He realized that no one could straighten what God has made crooked, also from Ecclesiastes. All things, therefore, did not need to be fully rational. The Hebrew mind was willing to accept the truths taught on both sides of the paradox. It recognized that mystery and apparent contradictions are often signs of the divine. Stated succinctly, the Hebrew knew the wisdom of learning to trust in matters that they could not fully understand. They knew the wisdom of learning to trust in matters they could not fully understand. Neither God nor his word may be easily contained in a box for logical or scientific analysis. You need to take that one to the bank, huh? Both God and his word have a sovereign unpredictability that defies rational human explanation. Jewish biblical scholar Pinchas Lapide writes this provocative word for Christians to ponder. Jesus was certainly no theologian in any Western sense of the word because he was a Jew. Like the prophets before him, he gave concrete biblical answers to the pressing questions of daily life, poverty, payment of taxes, feuding between relatives and colleagues, and daily subsistence. He would certainly have detested as arrogant blasphemy any attempt to unravel and neatly systematize the mysteries of God. You hear that? In a similar context, Lepide reinforces the above point by commenting on Gentile Christians who try to squeeze Jesus and his paradoxes into logical straitjackets. Says Lepide, he, Jesus, is still protesting. I am no cleverly thought out book. I am a human being with all the inherent contradictions. Lepide's point is well taken. It drives the Christian back to the Gospels to consider anew such sayings as Matthew 10.34, in which the Prince of Peace, we just quoted this one, says, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The Semites of Bible times did not simply think truth. So critical. They did not simply think truth. They experienced truth. As we have previously emphasized, truth is as much encounter as it is proposition. This experiential perspective on reality explains, in part, why Judaism never really developed vast systems of thought. It also allows us know, allows us to understand how Judaism could live with the tensions and paradoxes surrounding block logic. To the Jew, 
The deed was always more important than the creed. Let's put that one on our fridges. What do you say? The deed was more important than the creed. And if I can find my place again. He was not stymied by language that appeared contradictory from a human point of view. Neither did he feel compelled to reconcile what seemed irreconcilable. He believed that God ultimately was greater than any human attempt at systemizing truth. Walking in the truth, 2 John 4, and living the truth, 1 John 1, were a higher priority than rationally analyzing the truth. In the words of the renowned biblical scholar Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, we Jews are practical. We are more interested in discovering what God wants man to do than we are in describing God's essence. As a teacher, I never try to solve questions because most questions are unsolvable. He concludes, Judaism is never afraid of contradictions. It acknowledges that full reconciliation of the two is possible only in God. He is the coincidence of opposites. You've got to love that phrase. God is the coincidence of opposites. Kind of another way of saying crazy contradictions, isn't it? This is what we're faced with. Here is this idea of a different way of looking at life, a different way of looking at our scriptures, a different way of looking at our relationship with God. We were taught the Greek way. And really, it's a way of trying to exert control over our environment. It's a way of fear, because fear needs control. Because fear fears the risk. We think if we have control over everything, we minimize our risk. We have all the contingencies taken care of. And so the Greek way suits and feeds our fear of this unknown out there. You know, we've got to figure it out. We've got to harmonize it. We've got to resolve it. The contradictions are unbearable in the face of the fear that we have about life. We're not saved unless we understand God theologically in just the right way. That's the way we look at salvation. And life is not abundant. We can't experience it abundantly until we've harmonized it, until we've resolved it, until we've figured it out. If you really look at Jesus' teaching, he doesn't explain anything, really. He just asks us to follow. He asks us to lay down the things that we hold dear. We lay down the things that we have used as security blankets, including our intellect, including the things that we think we know, including our precious clarity. And I know I've told this story several times, but for some of you who haven't heard it, when a famous writer had hit his bottom, had lost his way, lost his meaning and purpose here in the United States, he went to India, he went to Calcutta, he went to spend time with Mother Teresa in the houses of the poor, because he thought there was something there that could help restore his clarity, this, this purpose that he had earlier in life. And his first day there, he meets Mother Teresa and she welcomes him and she says, what can I do for you? And he says, oh, just pray for me, Mother. She says, sure, what shall I pray for? He says, pray that I might find clarity. And she just says, no, I won't do that. And he's shocked. Oh, why not? And she says, because clarity is the last thing that you're holding on to and must let go of. And he says, but you seem to have such clarity. And she just laughed and says, I don't have clarity. 
I have trust. I will pray that you find trust. You get the difference? Someone who trusts from the outside looking in looks as sure-footed as one of those goats on the mountains, like they can't misstep. And we think they got it all figured out. We think they can see way far down the road. We think they have clarity, and we want that clarity because we're so scared. We don't know where to put our foot down. But looking at it from Mother Teresa's point of view, she didn't have any more information than any of us have. But she trusted that even in the absence of knowing that her father would be there to guide her steps and that everything was going to be okay, even if it wasn't at the moment, and that's the thing we've got to get. Just because the present moment doesn't contain the circumstances we want doesn't mean that God has left or forsaken us. It just means our circumstances are difficult. But if we continue to trust, if we put one foot in front of the other in the direction that we know that we're supposed to go, it's going to be all right. Terms are not final. It's going to change. Circumstances will change if we don't stop moving in the direction that God has given us to go. And so the first lesson of this first song, Crazy World, to me, is to come to accept and to love the crazy contradiction. Can we do that? Can we stop trying to change the contradiction? Can you stop trying to change all the things about your spouse that are different than you and just learn to accept the contradiction, to accept the differences, not only to accept them, but to love them, to celebrate them, to bring them into yourself as a way of taking these poles and bringing them to a balanced center? Can we do that? Can we even start to value that so there's a chance we might do it in the future? How about that? This first lesson is so foundational. It's so important. We need to come to accept and love the contradictions, the tensions, the paradox of life and stop trying to change them. Okay, how about the second song? This one comes from someone you probably haven't heard of. His name is Johnny Clegg. Anybody know Johnny Clegg? Nobody knows Johnny Clegg. He's one of the most uh, iconic and influential South African songwriters and musicians. And the interesting thing about Clegg is that he was born a Brit. He was born in Britain of a Rhodesian mother and a British father and emigrated to South Africa right in the midst of apartheid. So he was coming to of age in the 80s and his music was very political. And he, te- he teamed, he was fluent in Zulu and he teamed with African musicians. Savuka was the one that I was familiar with in the 80s. And so he was a racially mixed band singing politically tinged and anti-apartheid message in the midst of all that mess down there in the 80s. And so you can imagine he was right in the center of the maelstrom. In 1988, he wrote this song called Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World. And just the title starts to say it all, doesn't it? Cruel, crazy, beautiful world. And he wrote it to his two-year-old son because he was beginning to think like we do. What's this world going to look like when I hand it over to my son? But listen to what he writes. You have to wash with the crocodile in the river, swim with the sharks in the sea. You have to live with the crooked politician and trust those things you can never see. Beyond the door, strange, cruel, beautiful years lie waiting for you. 
It kills me to know you won't escape loneliness. Maybe you lose hope too. Ayeye, ayeye, yesim fama, ayeye, ayeye. That's all Zulu. Here's the interesting thing. Ayeye, what that means is sheer happiness, joy, exuberance, jubilation. It's their word for that. Guess what? It's just like shalom. Just like shalom. He's wishing, wishing his son shalom. Ayeye. Yesi Mfana just means Jesse boy in Zulu. Mfana. Ayeye. When I feel your small body close to mine, I feel weak and strong at the same time. So few years to give you wings to fly, to show you the stars, to guide your ship by. It's a cruel, crazy, beautiful world. Every time you wake up, I hope it's under a blue sky. It's a cruel, crazy, beautiful world. One day when you wake up, I will have to say goodbye. Goodbye. It's your world, so live in it. It's your world, so live in it. It's your world. Live in it. What's he saying? Live life as it is. As it is right now. As it presents to you. It's your world. Live in it. Don't sit on the sidelines wishing that it were somehow else was as you think it should be. It's your world, so live in it. Because here's the truth. Life always presents as it is. Not as you want it to be. As it is. Life is uncontrollable in any given moment. You can't make it what you want it to be. It's greater than you. It comes like entering a river, that stream, it goes where it goes. You can enter, you can try to swim against the current, or you can allow it to take you where it goes. But those are your choices. It's your world. Live in it. The abundant life that Jesus is talking about can only be lived when we're living life as it is. Not as we want it to be. The first and foremost trick, if you want to call it a trick, to living abundant life is to accept life on life's terms. Beyond that, shake hands with it, make friends with it, fall in love with it. In full bloom of its contradictions, disharmony, the paradoxes of life. This is Jesus' central point. This is what he's trying to get across to us. You know? He is trying to bring the child into the grown-up world. Do you see the paradox inherent there? Everything about life is about control and about power as we understand it. And Jesus says, if you want to live in kingdom, you come to it as the child. You come to it as the bond servant, the domestic slave. Bring those two things together and see what starts to happen. The child doesn't force contradictions into place doesn't force harmony on anything. The child just accepts life as it comes. You know? Their imaginary world is as real as the real world, and they see no contradiction in that. They just flow from their imaginary friends to their real friends and back again. They're able to do that. It doesn't force contradiction. The child literally becomes part of the paradox of life. And Jesus is saying, that's what we must do to find harmony in the contradiction, in the paradox, in the trust at the expense of clarity, knowing. 
Can we just celebrate that? Can we rest in the unknowing? This second lesson of this second song is to live life as it presents now. First one, learn to love the contradictions. Live life as it presents now in all of its contradiction without resolution. Then we can really begin to love, begin to love this crazy world. And so what about the third song? Well, the third song speaks of balance. This here-now paradox that we're talking about of these Hebrews it's not that we can live it all the time. It needs to be balanced. Because let's face it, we've got to deal with the real details of life, right? We've got to look down the road and see the future. We've got to plan for it. We've got to take out our insurance policies. We've got to stock our 401ks. We've got to plan for the future, not only for us, but our dependents, the people who rely on us. And if we don't learn from the past, then we're doomed to repeat it. Where is the balance? How do we balance these things? And this focus on the present moment doesn't mean that we don't celebrate past and future. It means that we have to bring them all together. And so this third song, I wanted to read you just a little bit from a column that Peggy Noonan did a couple of years ago. Because Auld Lang Syne, you remember the, the last scene of When Harry Met Sally? <laughs> it's, it's right at... Stroke of midnight on New Year's and they have this big romantic scene and then he looks up and he says, what does this song mean? They're singing Auld Lang Syne. All my life, I don't know what this song means. I hear it every year. I don't know what it means. Auld Lang Syne, what does it mean? She writes, you know exactly when you'll hear it and you probably won't hear it again for a year. The big clock will hit 11.59.50, the countdown will begin, and the sounds will rise, the party horns, fireworks, shouts of Happy New Year, and then they play that song. Should all the acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all the acquaintance be forgot and days of all lang syne? It's a poem in the Scots dialect set to a Scots folk tune and an unscientific survey says that a lot of us don't think much about the words or even know them. Auld lang syne, that phrase can be translated as old long since or long, long ago. But I like old times past. And I think even better than that, I like everything that we've been through together. I think really says it. Everything we've been through together. Old times past, long, long ago. It's a song that asks a question. A tender little question that has to do with the nature of being alive. Of being a person on a journey in the world. It not only asks, it gives an answer. It was written or written down by Robert Burns, a lyric poet and bard of Scotland. In 1788, he sent a copy of the poem to the Scots Musical Museum with these words, the following song, an old song of the olden times, has never been in print. Burns was interested in the culture of Scotland and collected old folk tales and poems. He said he got this one from an old man, no one knows who, and wrote it down. Being a writer, Burns revised and compressed he found the phrase Auld Lang Syne exceedingly expressive and thought whoever first wrote the poem was heaven-inspired. The song spread throughout Scotland where it was sung to mark the end of the old year and then to the English-speaking world where it's sung to mark the new. The question it asks is clear. Should those we knew and loved be forgotten and never thought of? Should old times past be forgotten? No, says the song, they shouldn't be. We'll remember those times and those people. We'll toast them now and always. We'll keep them close. 
will take a cup of kindness yet. The phrase old acquaintance is important, says a friend of mine. It's not only your close friends and people you love, it's people you knew even casually. And you think of them and it brings tears to your eyes. For him, acquaintance includes your heroes, my heroes, the Winston Churchills of life, the ones you admire. They're old acquaintances too. But the interesting, more serious message in the song is that the past is important. We mustn't forget it. The old has something for us. So does the present, as the last stanza makes clear. The song is not only about those who were in your life, but those who are in your life. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give a hand of thine. Well, take a good will, a right good will draft for old Lang Syne. The song is about friendship. I think it's a description of the things we lose in our hurry to do things. We forget to be a friend. We have to take the time to make friends and be friends, to sit and tell stories and listen to those of others. Tonight, I'll be at Susie and Joe's, she writes. I'll think of some who won't be entering the new year with us, and I'll take a cup of kindness yet for them, for all the old acquaintances in my life, and for the readers for ten years now of this column. We mark an anniversary. Thank you for being in my life. Happy New Year. And the lyrics of this song. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. And then the verses that we never hear. We too have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine. But we've wandered many a weary foot since Auld Lang Syne. We too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dine. But seas between us broad have roared since Auld Lang Syne. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give us a hand of thine. We'll take a right goodwill draft for Auld Lang Syne. It's about that sacred tension. It's about holding the past in the present in such a way that we don't fear the future. It's all here and now. But it's a mix of all of these things, bringing them into the past, bringing them into the present, remembering our friends and seeing them in the faces of the people that are with us right here and right now. This lesson of the third song is that life is lived in the balance, in this moment right here and right now, that everything comes together right here and right now. What does Jesus say at Matthew twenty-eight twenty? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's what I want you to focus on in that one short line. I am with you is a first-person, singular, present indicative, grammatically speaking, in the original language. What does that mean? It means, and it's only used in the emphatic, that Jesus is speaking present tense. I am with you. And it even has a secondary meaning of have always been. Jesus is saying to us, I am, emphatically, intensively, I am with you. 
And until the end of the age is to say, I am with you always and forever. But it's always now. It's always here. I've always been. I always will be here. Now, I am with you. This is the key to living life abundantly. We must be here now, incorporating past and future, incorporating the things that our abstract minds can conceive of, but bringing them into the present. To stop trying to change the things that can't be changed, at least in this moment, even as we work to change them in another moment. But this moment, right here and right now, can be perfect, can be lived abundantly, if we just allow ourselves to love the contradictions, to love the circumstances, whatever they are, at least to accept them, if we can't quite love them yet, and realize that life as it is, is the way it's been presented to us in this moment. And God is in this moment. He is here now, always. That's how life is lived abundantly in a crazy world. To begin to love the crazy world is the first step. Being emphatically present to each moment is the next step. Realizing God in the moment. And I'll tell you what, if at least 51% of us could learn to do this, to really follow Jesus where he is going so emphatically into this now presence, the world would start to become a lot less crazy. And I think we could all do with that this next year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this last year. For some of us, maybe it wasn't such a great year. For some of us, it presented huge challenges and struggles. For some of us, it can't end soon enough. But as we look forward to a new year, we ask that we can learn to embrace this past year exactly as it was, exactly as it is, so that we can do the same thing each day of the new year. Father, we want that abundant life. We want to live as if we are really in the midst of shalom, of ayeye. We want that. Help us to stop working across purposes with ourselves so that we can find that place of emphatic presence, emphatic here-nowness that will allow us to find you at the center, radically changing and making everything new in our lives. Thank you for being that kind of God. Bless our new year. Bless everyone in it, everyone in your creation. We ask that you would guide us and take us forward and take us anywhere you would like us to go so that we can learn more about you and our relationship with you and everyone else. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.